This week, Terror of the Marvoids and the Ultimate Foe. Written by Pip and Jane Baker, with a little bit of an assist by Robert Holmes. Directed by Chris Clow. Or as I like to call it, it's Agatha Christie's Attack of the Clit Flowers. You're listening to Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. We're a polyamorous married couple who discuss Doctor Who from a generally progressive, feminist, and social justice-oriented perspective. While we try to be sensitive, we generally don't consider this to be a safe space. Spoilers, naughty language, a general disregard for most things Stephen Moffat, and other adult content are likely found within. Oh, damn. <laughs> That's actually not as bad as I thought you were going to say. Um. <laughs> I think it really showed the difference between Shane and I, that I laughed like a sniggering schoolboy, and she was composed. <laughs> she, she just rolls her eyes at my dirty jokes at this point. Like, she's just completely inured to any kind of sense of me being improper. It's just completely like, okay, seriously. Yeah. No, come on. If the only things I find funny are like the occasional really good pun, and I'm like, hey, wait, you got me there. I'm a sucker for a pun. Yeah. Um, we might be able to find one or two here in the, this episode, so welcome! It's episode 86 of Voice Spaceman, a Doctor Who Love Story. We're off to the races already. You've heard me. That's uh, my wife, Shana, who you hear every week. Say hi, Shana. Hi, Shana. And uh, we are joined uh, by Elliot Chapman. Uh, Big Finish's Hello. own Elliot Chapman, as I like to call him. <laughs> Hello. Uh, how's it going, Elliot? Yeah, very, very good, thanks. I'm, I'm getting. I, I apologise to anyone who's listening. I, I might be a little bit nasal because I'm just getting over a cold. But apart from that, uh, yes, very nice, thank you. <laughs> good to hear. I think we're all kind of in something in the stage of it's just that time of year where we're all just kind of a slightly nasally. So, uh, great time to record a podcast, I say. <laughs> yes. Oh, lots of sniffing and coughing. <laughs> So, um, I do have a little bit of a structure today, but uh, we're probably just going to uh, very vaguely go over this. We've been uh, just getting more and more relaxed on all this stuff since then. And I, uh, last time Elliot came on and we didn't even talk about the story we were supposed to talk about, so... Um, do you know, I to think that that might not be entire. I'm, I'm sure we said something about Castrovolva. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I, 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 I did want to mention also, I made the Castrovolva reference, so this is twice <laughs> you've got, like, vaginal stories in this, uh, yeah. this podcast. That's the only ones you're going to be allowed to invite me yeah, on, yeah. is anything you know, the, the most tenuous link to uh, female genitalia. Yeah. That, that's it, you <laughs> know. Um, <laughs> oh, so anyway... Uh, Elliot, uh, so um, you are uh, Ben Jackson on uh, Big Finish right now, and uh, you just listened to our Mind Warp discussion uh, we were kind of talking before we started recording. Is that right? Yes, I did. I, I said that I wouldn't because I, I knew we were doing this day, and I thought, I, I don't want to be kind of um, swayed by anything anyone else has been, well, either the two of you or if you've had a guest, has said about the trial season. And in the end, I buckled and went, mm, I've, got a, I've got a couple of hours here. I'm having a long breakfast. I'm enjoying myself. I'm going to listen to Mind Warp. And I thought JB was great. He made some really great points. I, I, I was nice to listen to him. Yeah, well, he's not invited yeah. back. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you, t- you told me uh, when we were discussing this that you might have had a uh, story about Brian Blessed that you wanted to share with us. 
Well, yes, because when, when you started talking about Brian Blessed, I started to have a little giggle because um, a couple of years ago, um, I was in, a, I was in a, a, a stage play and the way the particular theatre ran was that they would have a show um, in production at, and at the same time, the next one was rehearsing. Mm-hmm. And then when that one went up, the next people were in. So it was a very fast turnover. But one of the privileges of rehearsing for a show there was that you got to see the one just ahead of you. And in our case, the, the, the lead in the show ahead of us, a wonderful actress called Hildegard Neal, who is married to Brian Blessed. Um, and she's wonderful. And um, we got the chance to see the show going in ahead of us, which is always nice. Not only because you get to see a lovely piece of theatre, but you get an idea of how maybe the space works and how the actors are handling that space. Well, I was backstage um, just milling around doing whatever I was doing. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, Hildegard Neal was talking to someone. And there was no mistaking who that person was. And it was Brian Blessed. And I was, I decided to eavesdrop. There's no point, you know, trying to get, but not that you can eavesdrop around Brian Blessed because he, you know, he's loud. He's got a very, very big operatic voice, as you would have heard in Mindwalk. But the conversation between them was to die for brilliant. So he, he was there and he was like, Hildegard, so which play is it you're in? Well, I've told you repeatedly, darling, which play I'm in. Yes, I know, but I mean, when do you come on the stage? Well, I'm on practically all the time because I'm the lead, Brian. Well, it's just I've got to get back to the house because I've left the donkey in the utility room. (laughs) A man with a donkey in his utility room. And I thought, this is the best conversation I've heard. If I don't get back, well, who knows what he'll start eating? Well, why did you not let the donkey out of the utility room before you came here? I've had too much on my mind. I've got, I've got to go up to the North Pole soon. And it was going on like this, that this is the most wonderful conversation I've ever heard, or rather overheard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Brian. He's really like that. I, oh, my God. This, this is like the second. You make my day every time you're <laughs> on. Please come back. <laughs> but he's isn't he wonderful in that story? I mean, oh, you know. well, and he does he just has that presence? Yeah, there's no. It doesn't matter, and I would much rather somebody have an it factor sometimes mm. um, than be technically perfect, because a lot of the casting is that that bit of like, is this something that's really special and well fit? Yeah, and it had been written for him, I'd read somewhere, because oh, okay. you know, it's very much a riff on the character he played in Flash Gordon. Yeah. Uh, and um, what people tend to forget now about Brian Blessed is that in his early years as an actor, um, he was, I think he, what happened with Brian is something that happens to a great deal of actors who gain quite a profile and then become um, very well loved, is that if you go back to, to the early things he did, he was very, very um, understated, still actor, very quiet. <laughs> um, but he um, he be, he started to take on a couple of bigger roles, more operatic roles, and he was very um, very well known for kind of very powerful Shakespearean characters at one point as well on the stage. And then over the years, people wanted more and more of that. Um, and it, I think now people you think forget he got that a bit typecast. Yeah, I think people forget now that he was um, a, a, a really versatile actor of, of considerable range because the only way he could get parts was to do this performance. 
and and then it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. He is very good at it, but it, it's meant sadly that I think that people have missed out unless they really tracked him down on the stage. They hmm. missed out on the fact that he's capable of so much more. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I don't know who said this, but someone came up with the notion once of what a great thing it might have been if um, Patrick Reichardt, who played Crozier, another very fine, classically trained actor, had actually played Yukarnos, and Brian Blessed had played Crozier as a kind of almost Joseph Mengele character, and therefore perhaps the, the, the blonde, almost Prince Hal kind of character would have made a more obvious romantic interest with Perry. Hmm. Um, I don't know what you think of that, but um, that's certainly something I've heard somewhere someone say. I don't know. For me, the uh, some of the best stuff in uh, Mind Warp is the uh, Brian Blessed, uh, Nicola Bryant material. So uh, I, I, yeah. I think they do have a, a, a nice chemistry in that story, despite how well, she, like, misused she is through her entire yeah, tenure. She, she spent a couple of years with one uh, big bullying man, and therefore <laughs> ends up with another big bullying man, I guess. But I love that moment, which is, um, I think, could easily have been badly handled because it, it's it's one of those lines we think, oh, God. But he does it with such, I think he does it very beautifully where she says, I mean, in, in many ways, it's an awfully sentimental scene. But when she says, I just want to be home with people I love. And he says, you know, what is love? And I just think he does it so beautifully because it could just have been awful. It's just he loses yeah. all the bluster at that point And it's just very, very truthful. I think that's a lovely scene. No, I really thought that they had, it was the one time we got to see like a true empathetic moment between Perry and someone else mm. where like you really got to say, oh man, I kind of feel bad for Perry. Usually yeah. I just kind of get annoyed by her. Mm. Um, Shayna's unpopular opinion. Uh, <laughs> well, well, actually, let's... Uh... You mentioned the it factor earlier, Shane. I'm wondering if you think there is a particular actress who might have an it factor in uh, this these two stories that we're talking about. In particular, Miss Bonnie Langford. How do you feel about Bonnie Langford in uh, Vervoids and Foe? Okay, so I think what happened is I don't remember even what her first line is. But within her first few lines, she starts getting very, like, excited by the situation. And I kind of looked at Daniel... And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? And he was like, she was a child actress. And so I said, Doctor? <laughs> and so then throughout everything, she'd be like, oh no, but this is urgent. Oh, I'm a child actress. <laughs> I keep expecting her to like doff her cap and go, you know, come on, Govna, you know, in every uh, in every scene she's in, it's uh, it's it's very uh, it's a style. <laughs> Mel don't give a fuck, and it's like I don't give a fuck. I was <laughs> curly hair all piled on top of her head. I God love her. She's, I mean, that's what you say when you're in the South and you want to say something mean. But oh, bless her heart. Bless her heart. She's she's cute as a button, but man, is she annoying. Um, it factor. I think that she. I think her character, maybe if she had been given more time to have quiet, thoughtful moments and not as many like righteous indignation moments, I would be a little bit more enthused. 
but a lot of what she says just sounds like pouting. So that's my first review of Mel. <laughs> what do you think about that, Elliot? How do you how do you feel about Mel and uh, Bonnie Langford's performance? I'm going to ask you lots of performance questions just because when we actually have a professional actor on the show who can actually tell us these things, like uh, from a professional point of view, and not like me just like ignorantly talking out my ass. It's always nice to uh, to feel like someone can tell me when I'm wrong, which is usually so. Uh, Elliot, how do you feel about Bonnie Langford? Um, I'm it out there. Well, let me give you some context. Um, uh, in the UK, um, Bonnie Langford um, was very, very well known, as you said, as a child actress. Um, she uh, she was immensely unpopular in being cast in this role, immensely. Um, and um, it, it was very much used at this point, mid '80s, as a sort of no- another way to say, God, John Nathan Turner's lost the plot. Um, and I know the, that, well, I know I wasn't there at the time, or I was, but I was very young, but I've learned since that um, the fandom, the UK fandom at the time, was absolutely spitting feathers about this piece of casting. Now, my take on it is this. I, I'm going to put it out there. I'm completely okay with Mel, and the reasons I'm completely okay with Mel are, are thus... I think she's a complete tonic after what we've had. Now, let's deal with the, 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 negative, the negative side first. There is no character to Mel. She is barely sketched. She doesn't even get an, introductory, an introduction story. She's just there. She, just, she is a plot device more than perhaps any other companion there has ever been. She is there to scream and be inquisitive and to tell the Doctor how wonderful he is. Bonnie Langford herself was at this point in her career, she's only about 20 here, I think. She was no screen actress. She had, I don't think she had, she had done some television as a child, but as you'll see in her performance, it's um, very big. It's more suited to the stage. Um, but even allowing for that, um, she has since become a very, uh, very good screen actress. She's just gone into one of our major soap operas, um, and um, I don't actually watch it myself, but I've heard from good sources that she's actually very compelling in it, really, really good. Um, so she's learnt how to become a screen actress, but her her origins were that of a dancer, a singer, a child actress. She's she's a trooper. She's 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 one of the uh, our industry's you know um, real troopers. So much so that. Um, you might have noticed or you know, might have detected that at the end of her first episode, this is a, an actress who's so talented as a, as a musical theatre performer um, that she screams in the same key as the closing sting of the credits because they asked her to and she did it uh, because she's pitch perfect. And it's just one of the funniest things ever in Doctor Who. She screams and the sound of the end sting absolutely matches her scream. I've met people like Mel, so therefore I don't find her maybe as um, uh, as bizarre a, a personality as sometimes she's reviewed as being. I know I've met <laughs> women like Mel who have come from sort of uh, upper middle class backgrounds, and, and that's how they are. And, and well, there's, um, so, there's something very eighties about her. Right? I think like, well, the, I think that you put a you know your finger on it right there. Why does Shayna find the voice annoying? Because it kind of resembles that upper middle class background. Of a, she, yeah, she, 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 she went she's to basically. all the right schools and knows all the right things, and she has lots of righteous indignation, but nothing really to back it up. No, but she works out a lot because it's the 80s. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think this thing, but the thing for me is I was too young to be aware of the hostility. I mean, yeah. I, I did see this story go out, but I was very young. And, and I do remember it, actually, and going out on the four Saturdays it was on. But the other thing is I find that after the, the problems with Tegan and Nyssa and Perry, even though it's not very progressive, she's not given much character, and I think all the points that you've raised, Shane, are, are perfectly valid, it's just a bit of a tonic to have someone comes in and goes, do you know what, I want an adventure. I'm not going to... Uh, I, I want to be involved. In fact, she's even ahead of him. She's getting into finding out what this situation is, and he's going, hang on, hang on, hang on, I'm not ready. And that's actually just kind of nice after what's been going on previously. Fair, yes, I will admit that. Um, although, I will say, I, I don't know how much you've listened to, um, I have really responded to the sagacity character. Ah. Uh, uh, you had some problems with her headgear at first, but you you definitely responded. I did. The wedding cake headdo. <laughs> it looked a little bit too doily and Christmas ornamenty for me at first, but once I just focused on the actress and I mean she just is given a huge amount of agency and has a very complicated situation that she is trying to. Um, Linda Bellingham is a very fine actress. She she died. Yeah, drugs. Yeah. Um, oh. uh, very young, yeah. She 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 succumbed to cancer, sadly, and she was a very very fine actress. But she, um, see, it's very different in our industry now um, compared to the seventies and eighties. Now, right. if uh, even though there's more competition, there are more actors than there's ever been, and there is fewer, there are fewer theatres. The BBC is not as um, strong as it once was. Um, there are fewer opportunities for actors. But one thing that we might have got better at that we that was certainly not the case in the 70s and 80s, was there is, uh, there is a little more belief that actors have versatility. Right. And, and Linda Bellingham's fine actress, but she was almost always cast in comedy. And fair play to John Nathan Turner, who comes in for a lot of flack and some of it, you know, completely earned. Um, but he was always very good at saying, I think there are actors out there who get seen as one thing and maybe Doctor Who can give them a chance to be seen in another light. And wow. Yeah, and Linda Bellingham plays this role splendidly. Actress. Now I'm really curious to see other things she's done. She went on after the trial of a time rule because she did this part for 14 weeks, something like that. Um, she started because she had some exposure as being seen as a serious actress again. She went on and got a, a couple of lovely plum roles, including um, uh, a role uh, in, a, in a film. Uh, where she was playing a member of the uh, the, the Romanov family uh, uh, during the 1917 revolution, and she's very good in that. Very good actress, yeah. Oh, yeah. The eyes. I can see her being cast as a Romanov. But it's a point that I, again, with her, that I made in a podcast that I was um, very lucky to do with Phil Sanderford around the Hellbent Heaven Sent story, and she mm -hmm. does that thing, which I think is a requirement in Doctor Who. Her performance is truthful, but it is a controlled theatrical performance. It is not naturalism she's giving. Um, yeah. And I think she nails, there is a way of doing Doctor Who, it's just my theory, there is a way of acting in Doctor Who, and I think she nails it. Well, and I think Daniel and I have talked about this before, because Doctor Who, if you watch it, from every era, it is literally a visual, creative uh, artifact mm. of television making, yes. right? 
Mm. Um, because Hartnell era was such a different kind of TV than where we are now or anywhere in between. Um, and I think that a lot of the core has been relying on that theatrical background of a lot of the actors. And of course, um, it's being in a court as well, because of course, as we know, um, lawyers, um, you know, barristers, and everything, they are they are frustrated actors. You have to play to the gallery, you have to play to the jury, you have to right, play. To, right. So she's got that nicely, and and I think it also it helps that with 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 Colin because um, the theatricality of his doctor, the flamboyance of his his doctor, actually suits a, a courtroom situation as well, because he can stand up and be all full of bluster and you know I object to this or whatever. So it works rather, and then Michael Jason, yeah, I who's think a stellar actor, can sort of uh, create the balance. Oh yeah, um, you know, I. It's funny because of these stories, uh, I really like the actual trial itself, right? Um, the most because I find those characters until the end where they stop making sense. Um, <laughs> well, hello, Pippa Jane Baker. We're going to talk about you in a few minutes. <laughs> Yeah, and then everything falls apart. You're right. I think that this is a point where we do get to see, like, the platonic ideal of the Colin Baker doctor. Yes. Um, that, yes, he may sound a little snooty sometimes, um, but it is because he knows himself very well. And so when he's like, no, I object. I would not do that. And there's a vigor to it. I think that the the trial really gives Colin Baker an opportunity to show his range because we see him reacting to all these different situations. Yeah. Um, so it does feel a little bit like a clip show, but yeah. I enjoy the kind of story that it's all couched within because I think his performance is so interesting of first we see him thinking when Perry died and then he hears... Which is a lovely moment. I think he does that very well. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's the thing, I mean, I, I'll put it on record as a whole thing. I don't think The Trial of a Time Lord is a very successful period of Doctor Who. Um, but I, and I, I don't think the end is very successful either. But if one thing like, that comes out of it, which I do like, is that the, there's these two versions of the Doctor that are put in opposition. And one is this ultra cool, um, the ultimate Time Lord, really, which is what the Valiard is, so ultimate that he even wants to become the top Time Lord, the one that controls the Matrix and controls everything. And it's everything that the Doctor can't believe he could possibly be. And on the other side of the courtroom is the most uncool guy, bad dress sense, unruly hair, um, you, you know, doesn't conform to the classical, oh, you know, he's slightly overweight and all this rubbish. And he's blustery, and he's ramshackle. Well, and it's emotional. I love that because it's like yeah. you know that that's the guy to be. It's the guy who fails. It's the guy who's fallible. It's the guy who gets the clothes wrong, and but who just wants to go out there and explore and enjoy himself and and give a little something back, and who is distinctly uncool. And I think if there's one thing that one positive to draw out of the trial, it's yeah, I'm glad that as as fans of Doctor Who. That's our hero. Is the ramshackle? I, I don't give too many fucks. Um, and, and not the cool bean counter accountant, ultimate time lord guy who he might become. Um, that's great. I think that's the, the real positive of the whole thing. And I think so much of that is the interaction between Colin Baker and again uh, the actress's name. I don't remember. Linda Bellingham. Linda, 
Thank you, Linda Bellingham. So much of that is just between the two of them. Yeah. Um, she and then the Valyard does, you know, come in and out. But yeah, that's, I, I think people may have seen me post to the Facebook page that, like, and then I thought differently about Colin Baker. <laughs> um, and I do. I, I think that they didn't get him right, but this story kind of feels like it gets him right, where we don't see him as audacious and, like, peacocky. He feels much more just very certain in himself and very okay with who he is. Yes, yes. Um, well, so there's a difference between being a peacock and kind of the geeky one, you know? Um, and that's, it's a big one. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to, you, you mentioned uh, the trial structure itself, and I, I find myself kind of rewatching the trial, kind of thinking that I wish they had pushed this idea even further. And instead of trying to structure the trial as, okay, we're going to have four stories that kind of are self-contained and then kind of the superstructure of the trial, I almost wish they'd really push this like 14-part trial story to its logical extension and say, we are going to almost do this like a clip show. We are going to almost just show you different moments from the history of the show or from, you know, like different adventures the Six Doctors gone on and talk about what that means for the characters or for the situations and really interrogate this premise a little bit more. I mean, I feel like there's, there's this almost like once they've decided to do it, but then they have this like reticence to actually execute that and to really do like a, a really long form yeah, story. It's, 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 a, it's a season that treads water, very, very, which is a great shame because, and I think the other problem with the structure is of course, um, to be able to even get near wrapping it up two episodes at the end is not enough. And that's why it just sort of goes, into such a mess but um yeah there's a sense that having come up with this rather audacious idea of of reflecting the trial of the series with the trial of the doctor um not sure really how i feel about that i I don't i I, you're you're drawing attention to your own problems i think uh if you're not willing to, to push it through because i think the problem is it's not necessarily a bad premise to go okay we're, we're on trial. We're going to justify why this series is the best series on television and we're going to justify why the Doctor is the greatest uh, TV hero of all time. And they don't. They, in fact, they make it worse by the end of 14 weeks because there is no justification. The Doctor just gets off. And you, and I think Terror of the Verboids is a case in point. The Terror of the Verboids story in that structure is... This is the moment the Doctor gets a chance to take control. I'm going to show you why I am needed and why this series is so vital. How? By showing you the watered-down, half-baked reworkings of old stories. And if that isn't the death knell of a series that has got a future, what is? Because it hasn't got a future anymore. Because all it is is a, is a composite. Of, we'll take a little bit of that Patrick Troughton base under siege. We'll do, we'll do a little bit of Philip Hinchcliffe gothic body horror, um, but with none of the production values, um, with a sort of Graham Williams era look, but none of the wit or imagination. And this is why this show should still should still continue to go on. I'm surprised it got another four years. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. It's like, no, this is this is the worst possible way you could say we're really vital, you know, uh, general viewing public. This is why Doctor Who could still work. Well, there is this sense of, like, they're trying to say, look, we can still do those things you loved when you were kids, or we can still do those things that you remember us doing. 
And so I sort of see a sort of sense of like, but it it, it just isn't good enough. It just doesn't sell it. It's not exciting. It's not a good story on its own, in addition to kind of like drawing back to those kind of old ideas. And I think that, you know, any show as it ages, I think the current show kind of has this issue, um, you know, without talking about particular showrunners or anything. Uh, the, the current show kind of has this issue of kind of, even though the quality is, is there in a lot of ways, it is starting to feel tired and it is starting to feel like we need some new blood or some new energy or some new idea and you're kind of going through the same motions over and over again. In 1986, you, you, would, you could legitimately say, why are we still going back occasionally to these bloody base under siege stories in 2010 2015 2016 they still pop up and and but you just think oh we're sort of doing this story again aren't we oh that's a bit of a shame um whereas i think if anything mind warp for all its faults at least philip martin who i think is a very good writer um basically tried to to say you know let's pull doctor who apart which is what seems to be happening in Mind Warp. What are all the tropes of Doctor Who? How is it structured? What happens if we um, make you uncertain of who the Doctor is? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, here it, here it is all in bits. So the next writer can come along and put those bits together in an interesting new way. And they don't. They just clear the decks and go, well, we'll just, we'll just show. It seems um, like there's a huge amount of fear. We don't actually know why this show's any good. So we'll just show you a, a kind of story you'd expect. And that's, it just feels very uh, weak. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how, like, I don't hate the trial season. I think, I think there are people that really just hate this season. I just think it's just such a kind of a, a damp squib, you know. It's just such a like it, it's just yeah, you know, it's a thing. It exists. I think it's got some extraordinary high highlights. I think the the, the if you could just take bits, I think the, a lot of the dialogue in the first story, the, the Holmes one, is <laughs> well, all the all the stuff Robert Holmes wrote is actually pretty solid. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's got great dialogue in it. It's just after you know that eighteen months, whatever it was, where there was no Doctor Who on television, it's like. This is your comeback story. It seems a little, um, it seems a little banal, it, even though the dialogue's very good. And there's some nice characters. Then Mind Warp at least has got something unexpected. And then you get that final episode where the final reel of the final episode is genuinely exciting and and and, and unsettling. And and um, and then superficially, I must say, I'm actually okay with Terror of the Burboids. I, I enjoyed it very much as a kid. It frightened me. And rewatching it um, to come on here, just in and of itself, it's like this is a very entertaining piece of cheap TV science fiction with some nice moments. Um, but I think in the context of a show fighting for its life and saying this is why we we, we should still go on, Mr. Head of the BBC, um, it's the worst piece of defence evidence imaginable. <laughs> because you're basically saying, I'm sorry, we've got no good ideas. We've got no new ideas. And the ideas we've got, some of them are 25 years old. And um, this is compounded by the fact that look how awful our budget is now. If we had made this story in 1976, it would have at least looked good. But we don't even have that budget anymore because the combination of inflation and the fact that the BBC used to give set the budget in such a way that every year you'd get your same budget plus inflation. So Doctor Who had a 1963 budget plus inflation in 1986. Now that's terrible. Then you have Philip Hinchcliffe, who was a fantastic producer. Um, he 
he was a fantastic producer, but he's so overspent on his era of the programme that ever after they were playing catch-up. And I have read somewhere that, that his successor, Graham Williams, um, look how knowledgeable I've become about Doctor Who over the last couple of years. <laughs> his, um, his successor said that um, four episodes of Doctor Who in the late 70s was almost the equivalent of one in the mid. That, that's how little money they had. And it really shows here. I think it's not just that for me. I think it's that, you know, Daniel and you have both kind of talked about briefly um, that the trial of the Time Lord is is kind of the trial of Doctor Who, of of the show trying to justify its own existence. And I do see that in it. But I think if you're going to do that, Elliot, I would assume, knows or has been in very low-budget stage productions. Yes, and very low-budget everything. <laughs> right. And, um, what's the not, old saying yeah, about yeah. community theater? You you're, you haven't really been in community theater until every piece of your furniture has been on a stage. <laughs> um, yeah. There is a big difference in how you use the budget as well. And I I do wonder sometimes if they... Um, kind of lost some of their budget just trying to get the sorry for the unintended pun the glitz and glam of the 80s well what was very unfortunate for the series in a way was i think there was probably a hope that given that the budget was was sort of dwindling year by year that the best thing to do would be to make the best of a bad lot now i'm not going to give anything away about the era you're yet to see but by god it's good the Sylvester McCoy era and a, a great deal of the reason that it works is because they go you know some things don't work anymore so if we're going to show something fantastical we're going to be very very uh, clear to the audience we're going to signal to the audience that there's something almost expressionistic or stylized with the way we're doing it or we're going to set it in a, in a believable present or near near past that we can actually realize effectively. The problem at the time in the, in the early mid-80s is that every time they got an audience report back, the, po- the popular stories were the very, very spacey science fiction stories, the very ones that they found hard to realize. So there was this odd, almost cognitive dissonance in a way, because the audience at one point was sort of saying, God, doesn't it look cheap? But actually, the stories we love the best are the ones that have got spaceships and uh, monsters and it, the very ones that they were finding hard to make. Uh, and I think there was a real feeling that can't we just like make these sort of like gothic horror stories or, you know, something set in a house in, you know, 1890 or something? No, because the, the audience kept saying we want more of those space stories, which at the same time we think are cheap. <laughs> so it was a no win situation. I, I think that, you know, I think we do push a little bit hard on production value. I mean, I, you know, for me, I I don't think the fundamental problem with this era is the production value. If the writing was there, we wouldn't necessarily look at, oh, that set looks cheap. I mean, we would, but at the same time, you'd be drawn into the story. And I think that the more fundamental error is just, they just had really bad ideas about how to do the Sixth Doctor. They had really uh, writers who are not... Uh, as capable at uh, effectively realizing Doctor Who format and Doctor Who structure, and just I mean you know just fundamentally I mean you know it's it's you've got fine actors I mean Bonnie Langford I mean for all the you know the she is a child actor and uh, Shana go ahead and do your impersonation again just for uh, yes please uh, I'm a child actor 
but at least like her and Colin and Linda Bellingham, they are attacking it with passion. They are attacking it. They're, they've got energy in there. Attacking uh, it is there. I yeah. will say, like, if, if I was going to say a difference in the approach of the of these stories in general is, man, the 80s. Mm. And it, it's it's so hard to even talk about it because, you know, it's suddenly, instead of just having a spaceship, it's, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you in the middle of your workout. And everybody's <laughs> always in the gym. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. There, that is very prominent in Vervoids. I mean, but I, I kind of see it as like a, I mean, what's funny is like this idea was actually done effectively, in my opinion, in the uh, Mystery on the Orient Express or the, this, mm. on the, uh, God, what's the fucking title of that one? I don't know. Yeah, um, uh, story in uh, series eight. Where f- oh, I see. Uh, oh, yes, yes, I know what you mean. Oh, um, the mummy. Mummy on the Orient Express. Yes, excuse me. Um, yeah, I was never gonna remember yeah. that. So thank because you. It's still, that kind of. I mean, it's an it's a Christie pastiche, you know, and so it's. Uh, but here, like the, this fundamental idea is that the murderer isn't like one of the members of the of the traveling crew. It's a, a it's a it's a plant, you know. It's this monster. That's uh, kind of being uh, created by uh, this mad scientist Lasky and uh, you know some of the people around her and all. I mean, the the story of this when I started kind of looking at it and saying what's actually going on in this story. Like once you kind of leave the basic sense impression behind and say what's actually kind of going on. What are the moving parts? There's some interesting mm-hmm. stuff here. There's some interesting stuff that they're kind of trying to bring up about. Uh, uh, you know, science, uh, you know, oh, mad scientists and, you know, that sort of thing. It's just like it's so limp on the page and so limp in terms of its execution that you just, it just kind of becomes like a mush as I'm watching it. Like it's just, there's just no, like, nothing to sink my teeth into. I think it runs into the same problems as perhaps all of the Colin Baker era. Um, it's so unfortunate that Colin Baker arrived at the time he did, because um, the writing really runs aground. I think the Colin Baker era, both seasons, contains some of the most fascinating ideas of any era of Doctor Who, in the sense that it starts to do something which very few eras um, before have done, which is it starts to notice economics, which is really interesting. It, it starts to get to grips with the idea of, of um, uh, postmodernism, certainly in all the meta stuff that goes on. There's a great deal of characters in season 22, and, in, and the whole of the Trial of the Time World is based on it, which is people sitting down to watch Doctor Who and comment on it. There's huge amounts of that. The problem is no one can get it into a workable script. A workable narrative. So the points about Terror of the Verboids, they're all really good points. There's some fascinating stuff in here. But mm-hmm. the very basics of, of, of dramatic writing are failing. Take, take the end, take the way that this all comes to an end with this Vionesium. Well, where's the Chekhov's gun? Vionesium is mentioned in the last five minutes of the story, having not been mentioned before. That's a basic dramatic failure. Yeah. Um, or, for example, having built up over four episodes, the Doctor doing that very wonderfully Doctorish thing. And I think one of the lines he even says is, the, the Verboids are not psychopaths. And then at the last minute, uh, yeah, but, you know, we're two niche creatures that can't exist in the same niche, so, uh, you know, well, let's just commit genocide and forget about it. And you think, that's another failure. Because you've just made an inconsistency in the Doctor's intentions. And all the way through the beginning, the Doctor's intentions are you you um, you approach the situation. You know, he's got that lovely little speech where he compares it to salmon swimming up sweet stream relentlessly, even though they may die. And, and all this stuff. And you're thinking, great, Doctor, great. You're not going in and going, oh, you're 
alien and different, therefore we're going to kill you. But at the last minute, you're alien and different and therefore we're going to kill you. And it's just those failures are so frustrating because the ideas, as you say, Daniel, they're there. They just need to be put into better stories. <laughs> have you have you read the Target novelization of this? Uh, if I did, it was, you know, it was as a child. Oh, so there is actually a novel of the... Which part? Virtually every story in the classic series has a Target novelization. Really? Mm. Huh. I guess when, I didn't realize that. When I was a kid... I, yeah. You know, when I was a kid and, you know, being a fan in the, in the late 80s, of course, you know, there was a, there were, there were a couple of videos available, but there were never any repeats. So it was the Doctor Who on the television, a couple of videos, VHSs of, um, earlier stories, but you had your target novelization, which you could read. And, and for many, for many years, that was the only access to older stories was to read them in a, in a, in a little novelization. I, I think that, uh, you know, I know Phil Sanifer makes this point, and so it's not exactly original to me, but uh, a lot of the way that these stories are remembered, um, at least in terms of, like, the way fan reaction was in the 70s or 80s, was based more on the novel than it was on, this, on the story itself, on the actual televised story. So there are stories that are really well remembered just because the novelization was really good, for instance. But that's certainly that point about production values, though, Daniel. I mean, look at, I mean, Mind Warp is one story ahead, uh, one story before, rather. And, you know, a lot of its success is simply, they turn the lights down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even, you know, a very, very, very good director like Graham Harper, who directed The Caves of Androzani, um, I actually think that their equivalent of a, of a kind of Androzani mud monster, whatever it was, in Mind Warp, right at the beginning, that attacks the Doctor and Perry is better shot and better lit. You it, it, um, And you just think, you know, if the if the Hi Hyperion, Hyperion 3, if the spaceship, if they just turn the wretched lights down. But again, this is not something that we can even level at John Nathan Turner as a producer. John Nathan Turner was given a, an edict in, uh, I think, towards the end of Peter Davison's time, where he was simply told, you're not allowed to turn the lights down. Why? Because we're worried that some old dear in, in Chipping Norton will think that her television's on the blink. And oh, um, we used to be a, everyone used to be able to do this in the seventies. Yeah, well, we're not allowed to now. So he he was so he and others were fighting directors, um, were fighting all the time to get the lights down. And usually the lighting boys were like, no, we're not allowed to. <laughs> so and consequently, monsters like the Verboids, which might have looked okay in subtle lighting. In fact, there's a couple of shots where they do manage to get the lights down, which immediately they improve. But if you've got a set which is floodlit, it's game over, isn't it, really? Well, okay, so... But they still end up looking like Venus flytrap films <laughs> with, like, a very... It's weird. It looks both like um a penis and a clit. I yeah. don't know how it does it. It's pretty magical. Um, I don't know if they were sort of... If someone on the design team had watched Alien and thought maybe that's what, we're, which seems kind of odd because you know bringing that huge sort of uh, you know, connotation into a children's show is quite odd. But whether someone had seen Alien and gone, that's how you do monsters, and we've well, got fifty dollars. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, if you look at the basic anatomy of a plant, it's really hard not to make it look sexual when you try and add a human element to it, um, because flowers are just like pollinate me that's all they are yeah. um is is pretty spots to attract pollen and 
procreate flowers. Which is really all women um, are. In, in, you know, that, that's... Shut <laughs> up! What's an absolute riot about those things as well, those fair voices? And, and I, I don't know if necessarily this might be picked up by uh, an American audience, is that <laughs> I just thought this was absolutely ridiculous. The voices... Um, in the UK, the the, the 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 southwest part of the UK, the southwest peninsula, is really associated with farming and agricultural farming. And um, the the accent of a British person from that part of the world is quite a rotic R. So, so it, it would sort of be like this. I would speak to you like this if I came from the southwest part of Britain. And that's the voices that the verboids are using because, you know, they're plants and therefore it's a bit agricultural and therefore we'll make them sound like West Country folk. It's so totally ridiculous. <laughs> oh, my God. I definitely did not pick up on that. That's well, essentially like giving them southern accents in America. Exactly. exactly. So they're all there going, we must make verboids the top species. And I'm absolutely on the floor thinking this is so absurd because, you know, and it's not necessarily a right. It's not necessarily something that's going to be picked up by someone outside of the UK um, because I guess the most famous accents are the cut glass RP one or the or, or your Cockney accent. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's utter, it's so ridiculous. It comes around the other side and starts becoming wonderful. Oh no! <laughs> How am I supposed to hate verboids if now suddenly they're Sam Seelys? You know, like it's <laughs> all. <laughs> I, I have this. Uh, suddenly, I'm 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 flashing to the uh, Edgar Wright uh, Hot Fuzz movie. Like yeah, you know, we're we're going out like they're the the farmers in that movie, and that's the those are the verboids. Yeah. In fact, Wells, where that's filmed. Um, I've been through Wells many times, and, and yeah, so people would sort of speak like that if you went to the, you know, the local pub or whatever. I, I, do, I just have this image now of working class verboids sitting in the pub after their, you know, day like mining coal or something, <laughs> like you know, give me a give me a pint, you know, and they're just sitting there knocking a few back, and then they're gonna go home to their wives and children. But again, flat top hats, like you know, a... can we? Uh... <laughs> It's like something I said earlier about, you know, the ideas are there. They could, you know, in a strange sort of way, you could almost have made that work because there's this running thread through the story that I picked up watching it this time where there's, you know, it's very much about kind of the effects of imperialism. So that's like the Mogarian plot. And um, the, the verboids are going to be used as slaves. Um, so there's this strong thing in there about, you know, how different societies are being put in hierarchies or you know the, the racist thread humans not liking Mulgarians and exploiting their world uh, and then the plant creatures um, hating animal kind because they, they are fed on by animal kind and all the time you're waiting for these things to link up that the Mulgarian story is going to link up to the verboid story which is going to link back to the imperialism theme and it never happens and that's very sad because again great ideas no payoff one of the things I was fascinated about um, in terms of the idea was just the idea that the verboids are specifically designed to be kind of manual labor. They're like they're like robots or organic robots are just made out of plant material. And so you also have these kind of ideas about automation and the idea that our that our automation is going to come and take us over. And um, that connects us kind of back to the Cybermen almost. I mean, it's it's the verboids are, are a fascinating idea. Uh, there's just mm -hmm. no execution here at all to, to make this work. Even in the slightest, uh, you know. I still think it has. I mean, and again, I don't know whether it's a, something of a nostalgic attachment or whatever. But I did have points when I watched this, and I did lose myself in it. So, for example, the the, the moments when you know a grill is rattling and, and someone goes to investigate and they're stunned, or when the Doctor and Mel 
discover the, the the poor woman who's been half mutating into a vervoid. And all these moments are really good. And so there were points where I was sort of lost in the story. And I, and I love the little sequence around the, the old gentleman this, uh, who, who, when he opens his shower door, is a sort of inversion of psycho in a way. Um, I love all that. Um, and it, and I, it's such a shame because, you know, the, there were definitely moments where I lost myself in it. You know, I was entertained, but I was slightly frustrated as well because I thought, actually, you, there's not much that needs to be done to make this work. But for some reason, it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that Vervoids is terrible. And I, I do want to um, talk about Ultimate Foe here um, in just a moment. So I, I don't know how much more we have to say about Vervoids. But, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. People people kind of shit on this, and they call it you know the terrible terrible story. But I agree. Like the uh, the moment the uh, the body horror stuff with the uh, the person being turned into a vervoid and uh, that sort of thing, I thought was really effective. And in fact, that's a a really good effect. Yeah. I thought that was a. I mean, just visually, really well done. Yeah, I thought the the makeup, everything about it was really really well. I done. wish they had pushed that as like what the kind of foot soldiers of the vervoids looked like, rather than the you know the the clip faced monsters, you know. I yeah. think it's more interesting, and again, sort of riffing on your Cyberman um, analogue, is that rather than once the people were stunned, they were dying, that they were becoming vervoids. So then you had the extra uh, punch, sucker punch, of we're not only killing off the vervoids, we'll have to kill off people we know and who are friends of ours or work colleagues who are, who are becoming vervoids. And I think that would have raised the stakes and would have been far more interesting. But I, I think that's a lovely scene. And again, you know, there are actors at Malcolm Tierney, who I think, who plays Professor Lasky's assistant, Doland, who the one who's, who they discover is the murderer. He's sort of uh, tidying things up. Lovely little nervy performance from him. And and, um, and also her other assistant, uh, the guy with the moustache, whose name escapes me. You know, he's really wired through it. And, you know, and, and then he has this moment where he tries to gain redemption by flying the ship into the black hole. You know, it's full of these lovely, lovely bits. And, um, you know, the, the, the old guy who's about to retire, I think that's a lovely detail where he's like, I, I've been sort of used up and spat out by this company, so I'm going to have a little something for me at the end of it. I think there's lovely bits in it like that, but, it, you know, they just don't, they don't connect up. That's the sad thing. They don't connect. Any thoughts about Honor Blackman? Shana, would you want to go because I think I've monopolized the time? <laughs> um, wait, what honor? Who's Honor Blackman? She's Professor Lasky, and uh, she's a very famous British actress. She was Pussy Galore, among many other things. Oh, the, the blonde. Blonde. Yeah. Oh God. Um, you know, I don't. I don't want to like. It's it, kind of a dead horse issue, right? Like she is. The strong, she is such a stereotype now, um, of what 80s saw, like the power businesswoman type, that it was hard to take her seriously. But I also know that that was kind of commonplace at the time, so I don't know. So there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance when I try and give criticism, because I'm like, ah! Actually, it's probably closer to the Tina Belcher, uh, <laughs> Uh, she's a good actress. She performs that character well. I think that character ends up being very bullheaded and less complicated than I would have liked. 
Yes. Yeah. I think that's a nice way of putting it. I mean, like, just, just being able to say, like, she, my issue with so much of this, and it's hard to, like, disconnect it from these things. My issue with so many of these episodes is just that they're so the stereotype of the 80s. Yes. I think the one thing maybe which saves this character slightly, because I can't improve on what you've just said, is that um, Honor Blackman is probably about the best person to play it, because I can imagine some actresses who might very well have been cast at that time who would absolutely vamped it, and who would have gone the full Joan Collins. So I'm kind of, I'm at least very impressed with Honor Blackman that she doesn't go that way. She's, she's quite a bit more restrained than that, which I think is to her credit. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. She. She was kind of for for me that performance was almost just a, a bright point in the in the story. Like it's one of those things that just I kept latching onto. Is like I I like watching her just because I think she's good, even though the 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 the, the writing around her is not necessarily as good. She's got one great little reaction, and it's a lovely choice by an actress uh, because she doesn't give too much away because she's uh, and Shane is right in in, in the way she's. Assessed this character, but you know, even working within that, this character is presented as sort of the ultimate, you know, professional, bullish middle-aged woman. And there's this wonderful moment, and it, you know, if it was on the stage, you'd be able to see it so much clearer. Yeah, because yeah. unfortunately, there's a cut during it where one of her subordinates said he's, he's he's getting annoyed with her, and and he's trying to work out her angle, and he says, and, and she says, you know, how often have scientists been misunderstood? Think of Galileo, and it cuts to him. He goes, Galileo. Oh, you see the name Lasky inscribed in the history books, and she tries to play it down. He goes, no, 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 it's been a team effort. And you suddenly realise he's he's touched it underneath all that layer of, of, of supreme cool. Yeah, she's got a massive great ego, and all she wants is her name up in lights. And it's a lovely just little moment of that. And yeah, master in her choice of how she does the reaction. She plays it down in a in a non showy way, which is of course very clever. And Terms because it then indicates to the audience, oh, here's a character with at least some interiority. Because yeah, she has yeah. gone away to her cabin and thought, oh, you're not going to be really famous when this is done. I'm going to be the next. I'm going to be, you know, as big as Einstein or Newton or Copernicus. I'm, I'm going to be up there with the discovery of these creatures. I think it's really nice that. And, I mean, if it had been played up more throughout, mm. suddenly this character has. A, um, oh God, what's the literary, the acting term? Hubris. Yes. Uh, you know, we have a point of hubris where we can say that is her fatal flaw, and she becomes less of a stereotype and more of an archetype. Yeah, it's uh, not in the writing, it's purely what an actress has managed to try and do. Exactly, and so I can see her trying to play it toward that. Quite honestly, I do wonder... If, like, in the 80s, how many of these actors were reading scripts and going, so, what's my motivation? I know it's such a, <laughs> such a joke, but, like, yeah, you, you have to look, and that's when you find it out for her. So, yeah, of course she's going to... That's as being the only thing she can really play, I think. Yeah, I, she kills that moment, but that's the only one they give her. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's the unfortunate thing. And, I mean... uh you know, we talk about it in very similar terms with Contemporary Who, where I think all of the actors on Contemporary Who have been given moments that were very good. Whether or not that sustains you through it is kind of the big, bigger question. 
That's right. That's right. And uh, but on the plus side, though, I mean, I as I say, I totally agree with your your assessment of Lasky as a character. But you know, you've almost got to sort of be grateful for the what you can find. I mean, here is a story with a cast of about fifteen, and there are three women in it, and one of them hardly says it. So you almost got to go, oh well, you know, it, in some ways it's a crappy character, but you know, at least they've cast a woman because they could well have cast a man to play Lasky, and probably would have in former times. Yeah. Yay. So there's no reason that, you know, you can't have about three more characters in there that, that they just don't need to be met. They just don't need to be. Um, yeah. Well, we didn't talk about that a lot last week. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move on to the ultimate foe, if that's okay with you guys. Um, not that I, I mean, we're kind of playing this a little bit loose, but um, we've talked a lot about kind of how the trial kind of works out and, um, the ultimate foe is really just like kind of finishing up the, the big uh, trial plot, but it's also kind of our, well, it's not kind of, it is. Um, it's the end of Robert Holmes. The last uh, thing he, he ever wrote uh, was part one of uh, the ultimate foe. And uh, what do we think about the very last thing Robert Holmes ever wrote? I, I really would have liked to see Robert Holmes's ending. Of course, I do wonder about that. But I, I feel like it starts out and it's very familiar, uh, Bobby H. Dog style. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't what? know if he'll, have you heard me call him that? Yeah, well, I've just been reminded because I, it, it made my mind went back to a previous podcast. So I know, yeah, Bobby H. <laughs> Bobby H. Dog. Um, uh, and it feels very much like him. Um, well, he, he has that, that, speech the uh, the uh, the doctor's big uh, kind of rousing uh, yeah. against the time lords thing uh you get the uh, the fantasy factory which is uh you know just one of those like i wish there'd been more of this in the trial you know yeah honestly the fantasy factory when that light went on i was like beetlejuice <laughs> um, i was like ready for this to take like a bizarre tim burton turn and i was like yes let's do yeah, it yeah bizarre a bizarre so, tim burton turn but let's do it well. As opposed yeah, to the way Tim Burton would Sorry, I'm... Shut up. Beetlejuice is a good movie. Beetlejuice is probably the greatest movie. Well, Be- Beetlejuice and, and I've got... And I think the second Batman film, and I love Ed Wood, but I think that's it. Edward Scissorhands, I would, I would defend that one. Yeah. yeah. God, let us not talk about this. That is its own show. Elliot will come back, <laughs> and I will have to defend several Tim Burton movies, apparently. <laughs> Um, I, I'm really referring to the modern day Tim Burton, you know, uh, that when I when yes. I will shit on the modern day Tim Burton, but the '80s Tim Burton will depend. Yeah. Anyways, so but you have this very surreal moment, and they have such an opportunity, and I think that there's some interesting surrealness that follows with the hands that pull him down into the quicksand, which I really wanted the fact that Moffat copied those to make more sense but they were completely different things. So Moffat, like, either just hasn't seen as much Who as I have. <laughs> Which isn't true. Yeah, no, that's probably it. So, uh... No, I, I, what I find, what I find, I, one of the things I really appreciated was the fact that, you know, we're back in the Matrix. The Matrix uh, is, uh, was originally in The Deadly Assassin. Which, by the way, wasn't The Matrix being pregnable the whole point of The Deadly Assassin? Why are we still arguing about this? But I'll I'll leave that be for now. Uh, 
But yeah, the, the surreal imagery, the stuff that's kind of going on, is actually, in my opinion, superior to what was going on in The Deadly Assassin because it's in this kind of uh, funhouse kind of, you know, yeah, Tim Burton-y kind of thing. I, I really liked some of the imagery and some of the uh, the uh, officious uh, uh, <laughs> guy who has his rules and regulations about who gets in and who doesn't, and the doctor has to, like, uh, uh, sign the paperwork in order to see the master and that sort of thing. And I think all of that is... is uh, pretty effective it's pretty uh, well done and uh despite the fact that we're kind of doing this and we're trying to wrap up this giant thing and we're trying to defend doctor who as the show's continued right to existence i think it's it's kind of working to some degree i mean it's got a lot behind it but it, it's sort of uh it's sort of building up ahead of steam um and i and i think uh you know it's not robert holmes's greatest script um but it's it's effective i i found it entertaining I, I yeah. must, yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I, uh, I love all that stuff with Mr. Popplewick and, and because it reminds me very much of The Castle by Franz Kafka, which is one of my all-time favorite books, incomplete though it is, and I've only ever read a translation because I, um, but, um, so I love, my, watching The Ultimate Foe, I always think, why isn't this the first episode? Because I, th- mm-hmm. because there's this idea of, you know, if he's trapped in the Matrix and then, goes into a courtroom situation in the Matrix. You don't have to be in that bloody awful game show set or whatever it is that we've been in for 12 weeks because you could you could set it in the Matrix and then you can be in a sort of odd environment. It could be anything. Um, so that that always seems a slightly missed opportunity to me. Um, but well, and especially sorry to no, interrupt go ahead, go ahead. as I am want to do. Um, especially. That is a is a part where they could have gone completely surreal and completely low budget. Um, I'm thinking like in a the mind one mind robber. Thank you, mind robber, where you have that very much like almost black box theater abstract um, monotone colors. Uh, the art very different. Systems. The artificial, the, the the inauthenticity of it becomes the point, and, exactly. and audiences are happy with that. They'll buy into that, um, and yeah, you, you you work the budget more successfully that way. I think the biggest problem with this, apart from all problems, <laughs> is that you can't do it in two episodes. No, they should have basically. I think they should have made Verboids a two-parter and made this a four-parter. They should have swapped the length around because there's far too much to deal with in 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 this finale. And it's a rush, and it becomes very confused, very chaotic. And and yet again, as seems to be the thing I keep coming back to with the Colin Baker era, great ideas. Some of the most inspired ideas of any Doctor Who ever. And yet they completely can't get them into workable scripts. And that's the huge frustration of it. Um, because there's great stuff here. Great stuff. Including that uh, the, the speech. I mean, uh, how, do, how do we feel about that speech? Uh, Which speech? This is the one where he does try to justify himself. The uh, the the, oh. uh, the Time Lords, you know, the the Cybermen have nothing on you. That that big speech. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's it's the it is basically the ultimate expression of what Robert Holmes has always been saying. You know, he, I mean, he hates the Time Lords. He 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 thinks they're hypocrites, and uh, I I think it absolutely makes sense in that that big Holmes take on Doctor Who, which is yeah the biggest. You know, it it it, it his version of Doctor Who, which works its way through quite a few Doctors. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's terrific, you know, because you, you know, 
my God, yeah. I shouldn't have left home. I should have stayed here and sorted you lot out mm-hmm. first. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea that the doctor and um, the master have in common that they are both rebels from mm-hmm. the planet mm-hmm. is something that is a, is explored more in Classic Who, but they could have done even more. I think that that idea of really making the Doctor a counter-cultural figure, at least in his own culture, yes, um, means a lot to people. Um, so it's always interesting to me when they bring that out. I think, you know, we kind of have recently come back to that um, by bringing the Time Lords back in. And I think, as I said earlier, for me, and it's one of the reasons that I, you know, for all the, the, the problems and the bad decisions around the creation of the sixth doctor, um, the, the one of the things that I will still take away as a huge positive because I've got a great deal of time for that doctor in spite of those problems and very much for Colin Baker as well, um, is they're cool, um, they're, um, organized, they're, uh, corrupt, they're hypocrites. They, they say one thing and mean another. They are the, this horrible bureaucratic, um, highly uh, class-based society. And he is not. He is blustery. He is um, full of passion. He is full of uh, argument. And he stands in opposition to them as this uncool, ramshackle guy. And that, that still, for me, really works. I like that. Agreed. Um... I And, you know, I, I really like... That that's how you put it. Um, how horrible for him that what he faces is himself in the future possibly being everything he hates. And I really wish that they didn't go keep saying, you know, that the Valiard is the evil side of you, the, the dark side of you. That's rubbish. What the Valiard is, is the Time Lord side of you, the most Time Lord side of you, which is, of course, everything that he wishes to repudiate, to right, be confronted, yeah. this existential crisis to be confronted by not not only a version of yourself that doesn't share your ethos or your ideology, but is actually wants to be even more like the people you ran away from than they are. Uh, that's a, that's a great moment. And I still, there's a, I still get, you know, I know this is coming so many times. I've seen this story you know, growing up and everything, but still when he says, did you call him the doctor? And there's this great big um, yeah. synthesizer chord. And, and it's a great moment. Um, even if it doesn't make an, a, an enormous amount of sense afterwards um, and how they handle it, it is a lovely moment. You think, oh, my God, I've been facing off against myself for all of this, you know, because he absolutely it's like meeting yourself younger and despising who you were and and then, then being given the facility to change who you were. Um, that's a terrible power that, 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 he, that he's got. I definitely agree with you. I And I think that that is the part of the story that I miss the most because there is such a late reveal, even though like you can kind of tell pretty early on, like the Valyard isn't who he seems to be. This idea that the Time Lords have specifically cre- kind of created the perfect prosecutor and the perfect prosecutor is essentially a version of yourself the version of yourself that would disagree with you the most. Yes. And who who knows all the fucking details. Well, the version of you that accepts the establishment values and that uh, has, has taken the other path, that has stayed with society and has uh, yeah. 
not taken the side of the disenfranchised. You know, it's the side of you that has uh, agreed with those values and has uh, assimilated into the larger society and has accepted the uh, all the privileges that come along with that. Yeah, and, you, well, and that's the thing, because of course he is a privileged time lord. He is very underclass. That's the thing. He's the dropout, isn't he? That's what Robert Holmes created. But that that, that wonderful thing. So you can imagine that. Their glee at being able to create the perfect time lord out of the one they most they're most embarrassed by. So it's that lovely two way thing. It's great. It kind of makes the doctor like the ultimate Bart Simpson. <laughs> yeah. You know. Again, oh, they're still it. It. They just don't. They just you know, because you're still waiting at the end of you know the episodes to like okay now. You've been confronted by this version of yourself. You've been told, uh, you, you've, you've explained or had revealed to the audience now that the Time Lords are hypocritical bastards, and that's why you ran away from them. And let's, be, and let's face it, it's incredibly tempting to look at um, the Time Lords as the BBC and the Valiard as the guy who put Doctor Who on hiatus, Michael Grade. And um, so it, it, you, you get back into the meta thing again. And he's got that point to absolutely justify himself. He has a really great speech that Robert Holmes gives him. And then Pip and Jane Baker come back and any chance that you, any potentiality that was there for it to go, do you know what? This is a great character and this is a great series. And even if the previous 12 episodes haven't got it worked out, we're working it out now. We're, we're almost there. We're almost at the last hurdle. And in the last episode, despite having one or two good moments, kind of doesn't get anywhere near to pushing that point home. Yeah. It, Doctor just gets off scot-free. There's a rather flippant ending. Well, and it's okay you, that you committed genocide, Doctor, because you saved all the rich white people. Yay! Exactly. And he's like, Which I absolutely believe that this farcical kangaroo court would make that decision. <laughs> but it's such a weird yeah. moment where, I mean, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You're good. It works as an extra sting of satire if they were behind it, but the problem is it's the point where we leave, and you get no sense as the closing credits come in of, yeah, this series and this character, that, that they definitely should go on for another 20 years. <laughs> you just, you know, even if, even if you're a big fan of the show, as you know. Yeah. Like, no, you if, just, if, if, <laughs> if I had seen that as the end of a season, I would have been like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw it, and at the end I was like, wait, what? That's mm. what? So. And the last words the Sixth Doctor think... says are carrots. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And in a way, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm an apologist for this Doctor. He, I mean, firstly, he was the first Doctor I saw because of my age. That's the first mm. one I had access to. So there's nostalgia there. But I do have, I'll, I'll defend, I will acknowledge all the immense amount of problems with the Sixth Doctor. Um, but I will also defend him. But the thing is, even I, as an apologist for this doctor, he, he's finished at this point. There's no way you can bring him back. And you, you, no. and Sylvester McCoy is needed at this point. They need to, to rediscover that kind of, uh, Trajan-esque doctor. And Drop all the crap. And just someone who's, who we, who we can really root for, who's not weighed down with all these complicated, um, character notes that haven't been worked through at all. And I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head there is like, we really need somebody that we don't dislike. Yeah. You know, we want somebody to root for. And even in the trial, even though you, I do like the doctor more, it's hard to root for him. 
Um, because, you know, like, we don't know that shit got faked. We think that Perry's dead, hypothetically. And, you know, we don't really get much resolve either. It's like, oh, look, she's off in the distance enjoying her future, by the way. Um, because, you know, he, he, um, had the worst possible start of an actor in the role. I mean, you, you the, 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 his first story is dreadful. And, you know, all the decisions that are created around him, that bloody awful costume, you know, on it goes. And he, throughout his first season, which should have been, if, if, if people were on board with that first season and worked out what they had done, rather than sort of slamming the, the ideas against the wall like so much hurled linguini, mm-hmm. um, he, he would have been able, throughout that season, to have had a character arc where you see him improving, you see the instability ebbing away, and then him becoming more compassionate, and him redeeming himself with Perry, and redeeming himself for the viewer, fucking change the costume halfway through. That's a visual signal to the audience that, oh, you know, we're getting better. Put him on trial. But no, the only way the Sixth Doctor ever works is because Colin Baker has the facility either to play against his lines or to do things which makes him look... Someone, This isn't an original thought. Someone else came up with this, but I do agree. Which is to make himself a bit like a proto-Frasier, where he is this pompous, arrogant bastard, but he falls on his ass. But it's all communicated by Colin. It's not in the scripts. And there's like little... There's a, there's a moment right at the beginning of the trial, which I think is really indicative of how hard Colin Baker is trying. It's a little tiny acting moment. He goes... The TARDIS arrives, goes up the steps, he goes to knock on the door, and he stops himself. He summons up the the arrogant sixth doctor, just pushes the doors open. He's thinking, oh, hello, this is interesting. He's not actually this person. He's the doctor playing the doctor. And then he sits down, has all that business with the Valyard, and in walks the Inquisitor, or Sagacity. And he goes to stand up. Because, you know, someone's entered in the room, someone of authority, a lady has entered the room, thinks twice about it and sits back down again, just um, uh, with a sort of uh, bit of a look on his face. You think it's those little moments that Colin Baker's mm-hmm. that are suggesting there's more to this character. But by God, he's given the worst ever set of challenges to wade through. And it's another reason probably why I've so much time for him, because... I, I think that one thing, since I knew... I was so well prepared to dislike him. Mm. I really did pay attention to his eye performance, for lack of a better phrase, um, because that's where I can always see the biggest acting, is if that person's really trying to inhabit a role, they will use their eyes, because if they're given bad words, um, I think Capaldi, uh, it's funny because they made, you know, his eyebrows are angry, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's done so much for his character that he can really act with his face and yeah. just his face. I I really do see a lot of interesting choices that Colin Baker makes mm-hmm. and how he delivers every line, honestly. Um, but yeah. It's a remarkable thing, really. I mean, you know, as I said, the, 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 the fandom has been down on him for so long now um, that, you know, if anything, it, it sort of makes me dig around for things that I love. But, you know, one of the things that I think is remarkable about him as a, uh, in this role is, I, I, it's a point I made to Phil Sanders that I cannot impress enough, as, a, as someone who is an actor also, how, how much it diminishes you if you're given a shit costume. And oh. he not only manages the extraordinary 
feat of looking relaxed in that bloody thing. But he he has to dial up his performance. There is there is the performance is massive. I mean, it, and I think some fans are loath to complain that you know, uh, sorry, not loath to complain, are quick to complain that certainly coming off the back of someone like Peter Davison, who is an enormously gifted screen actor and very subtle and understated, oh, that Colin might as well be doing it to the, you know, in the Royal Albert Hall. And it's like, if Colin comes in any lower wearing that costume, he is just a costume. It is not a character. So Colin has had to dial up his performance probably far more than he would have done if he was given a, a different outfit of course of course that is the case um but still I makes it true i think still. what you said like the power of what would have happened if halfway through they changed his outfit if if we actually saw a visual kind of cleaning up of his thoughts where yeah. maybe he got a haircut and a different jacket um I, I was literally thinking that because in one of his last scenes he's in that desert and his hair's whipping around and it's just this huge mass of curls. Yeah. And if anything, it, it just really what well, because I, I don't know if you know the story, but at the beginning of the trial season, Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant made a pact with each other off screen that they would play against all their lines because they were sick of this acrimonious relationship between the Doctor and Perry. If you actually read the lines, everything is still the same as it was the previous year with them, if you pardon the phrase, bitching at each other. And um, they made the decision as a pair of actors to play against all their lines. The nice thing about Verboids and the ultimate foe is that he's working so hard to tone down the 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 the, the, the asshole side of his doctor. Um, yeah. He's actually very endearing. But what? But the problem is, part way through the trial season, where he's trying to say, "I'm not this. I'm not this asshole. Who? who um, I'm someone that that can be conceived, can be considered heroic and a great doctor." They put in mind warp, where they put him right back to square one, behaving like a bully and and a misogynist, and you name it. And mm-hmm. it's so unfair. He must have. I, I don't know. He, he must have just thought, "My God, you know, anything I'm trying to do." They're pushing me back into that, into that that portrayal, which is losing me an audience. <laughs> it's certainly not gaining in one. Um, you know, and I I think all of our doctors get to see a moment where they do have at least one story where it's like, oh God, I have to really fight back against this to keep my doctor where I've been playing it. Mm. Um. But yeah, I I think with all of the complaints and all I was prepared to dislike of Colin Baker, I really found him him really engaging as a doctor, interesting. I I didn't I wish that uh he and uh Nicola had made that pact from the beginning. Yeah. Um because it, I probably would have liked Perry a lot more. Yeah. Might have been something in it also as well. I mean, she, she Nicola Bryant wasn't long out of drama school and, you know, as someone who uh, is himself, you know, only a few years out of drama school, um, in the early days, you'll, you'll do what's given you. Um, and so that's, but it's interesting. I think Colin, um, although Colin was a bit of a TV star by that point, he'd done a show in the, in the 1970s, which was really successful in this country and I think did very well in Europe and he was one of the leads. But, um, it's interesting. I think it's something maybe in the personality. Of, of the leading men, because the, I I I think that Colin might be just very very agreeable and very very good at getting on with things, which is in some ways a, a, a really positive 
thing. But I also think that if someone had come up to say John Pertwee with a script in which he only features in 25% of, which is sometimes the case in Colin's previous season, he would have flipped his lid. And Tom Baker would never have got into that costume. He would have just said, no way. And, and I think Colin was more diplomatic, perhaps, or less of a star in a sense, and sometimes did things, um, and in a way, it's, it's a Are you saying thing. that because Colin Baker is too nice and wasn't enough of an asshole, it's his I, fault he had I, a bad costume? I don't think an actor needs to be an asshole. In fact, I think it, it, it's better if actors are not. However, there's yeah. a very fine line between being agreeable and, um, and, you know, hoping you'll work again and taking any, anything that's given. Um, I mean, Colin Baker in 1984, um, he was a much, much higher profile, bigger actor than, than I am. But, even at the risk of, 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 of I mean, if someone gave, put, put that costume in front of me, I'd be like, "You're joking, aren't you?" I mean, I would, have, I would kick up a stink, and I'm, I have got no profile. I'm, um, so I wonder if he, he was a little bit too agreeable with it. I don't know. This is just conjecture. I, I, but no, I, think I get it's that. Fascinating. I do. Sorry, get that. And I think maybe the problem with that then with with Mel as a companion is this underlying, just kind of sense of going along with the flow. Um, Mel is such a stereotype of the 80s. and I get the sense that Colin Baker's a real team player. And if the team votes one way, he goes along with the team. Whereas I think that that, that a John Pertwee or a Tom Baker would would stand up to the team sometimes and go, what are you talking about? This isn't going to work. No, and I think that I think that there must be some truth to that. And this is all fan speculation. We don't really know what's going on right now, but Peter Capaldi seems to be pulling some weight with yes. the direction yeah. of the I, show. Yeah. Because he completely acted against some of his lines in some mm-hmm. episodes. And I'm sure that there was some shit going on. But you don't go to Peter Capaldi and tell him he's a bad actor because oh, fucking fuck no, he's not. Yeah. he's and, and also, I think he even got things rewritten. Whereas I don't, again, it's conjecture, but, you know, Matt being much younger and, and more, I, I wonder if he had the same, but, but then there's also the things to factor in about Peter, of course, that he really knows his Doctor Who. Um, so yeah, he's yeah. able to say, no, this is not where we go with this. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, it was a new world for Matt Smith, wasn't it? I mean, he wasn't all that familiar with it. And, and he was a younger actor and that was his big break. I mean, he, you know, Matt Smith along with Tom Baker, and to perhaps to a lesser extent, uh, Sylvester McCoy, they're the three actors who no one knew really when they took it on. Um, right. Tom had done a couple of films and had been very big in the theatre. He'd, he'd worked, well, he'd worked at the National, he'd worked for Laurence Olivier and stuff. Um, but no one knew who he was. He, William Hartnell, Patrick Trapp and John Perman were big names. Peter Davison was a big name. Colin Baker, not such a big name, but he had been a TV star through quite a chunk of the 70s. And Peter Capaldi, you know, huge amount of credits, massively. Uh, Christopher Eccleston <laughs> was already pretty well known. David Tennant was. Yeah. Um, just uh, one more point on the costume. I, I find it interesting, um, from a, from a kind of gender politics perspective, that when you see the uh, reverse uh, gender doctors or the uh, opposite gender doctors, uh, the six doctor costumes are often the best. Um, that that uh. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, the female, the female sixes are, are often just, I don't know, uh, from my perspective, just adorable. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think it's interesting. Like, I think that there's, 
there is a way to embrace that quirky madness that we find more acceptable from a feminine point of view. There is quite a bit about Colin's performance that is not only snooty, is a little bit effeminate. Mm. Um, I think that gets made worse in the earlier episodes when it looks like he has pancake makeup on. Oh, gosh. And the DVDs just made that so obvious. Yeah. At least when they were transmitting or they were released on VHS, you couldn't really see that stuff. But it's that thing about cleaning up things to within an inch of their life that you can see the lipstick. You can see the foundation. It's such a shame. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little hard. I I, I definitely feel like he's very poncy would be the word I would use. Um, He's quite a dandy at first. Um, And then kind of somewhere between the quality of the video and lighting and the setting, things get dingier as he goes on, but they also get like Mel. Um, So his jacket doesn't look as audacious next to Mel and polka dots. Yeah, I think this is actually a really good point, Shana, because the costume itself isn't necessarily a problem. If you're going to have a stylized costume, Mm -hmm. you have to have a stylized series. But the problem with uh, a great deal of, uh, of this 80s period of Doctor Who is they stylize the costumes of, say, the Doctor, even some of the companions, but everything else is played as a kind of heightened realism. So you you watch something like, I mean, the one that always springs to mind for me, because I just find it so peculiar, is, um, is um, a story like the Peter Davison Dalek story, because it's set in present day, and it's all very grim and, 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 and gritty, and Peter Davison's hanging around with the military while wearing this crazy cricketing outfit that that's never existed and everyone's ignoring it (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah if if everything was made stylized fine but i think that that the fundamental problem with the whole thing is you know and it's it's the actor in me coming out give me clothes to wear not give me a costume to wear unless it's justified that i wear a costume Um, thankfully i think with one exception with one article of clothing that, that that is the exception um, they at least started to tone it down again with so, um His costume has that more thrown-together look. Um, I think Peter and Davison and Colin Baker really suffer uh, more than any other doctors in what they're given to wear. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, any further thoughts about this, Shana? I think uh, there's more we could talk about, but I think we uh, covered this pretty well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, Elliot, uh, tell us where we can find you if we wanted to spend money on your stuff and give you some money, professionally. You can find me under most rocks, lurking. Um, I'll go hunt for you. Yeah, <laughs> <no>. great. <laughs> um, well, I guess it, for the Dot Two connection, there, there's the um, Big Finish, and I'm still doing Big Finish. Um, there's uh, so the uh, the Big Finish website, which I think is just bigfinish.com. Um, that, that's where you'll find, um, and we've got a new one coming out quite soon, actually. Um, and uh, I'm recording, I recorded one last week, and I'm recording another one next week, so they're still going. Awesome. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely put a link to Yay! Elliot has work. Yay! <laughs> An actor in work, my God. <laughs> Well, we definitely appreciate you coming on, Elliot. It's uh, definitely been uh, appreciated, Thanks. and um, please come back uh, for a future episode where uh, we're excited to. We're always excited to have you because um, you bring it. You bring a really That's nice perspective to us. Um, you know, like, oh, bless you. Love thank you so much. Very much. Thank you. <laughs> Shana, do one more mail before we go. 
I'm trying to think of a line that she actually says. I told Daniel last night I wasn't going to remember a line. Okay, I can give you a line because I watched this story, these couple of stories uh, quite recently. Uh, so okay. Cooper, that's it, Doc. Now we're getting at the dirt. That's it, Doc. Now we're getting at the dirt. I was a child actor. Brilliant. Ten out of ten. <laughs> I love it. It's so great. Oh. I, I think I might just have to like quietly mention you to to, to the big Finnish people and say you've got really good mail for whenever. Oh Bonnie's Jesus over. Christ! <laughs> if you did that, tears <laughs> down my face. I love you so much. Go, you know, I mean, Bonnie's very busy at the moment with EastEnders, which is this show she's in. Like, you know, if you want to do any sick Doctor Mel stories, I know someone. <laughs> oh God, that was... don't tease me, Elliot. Don't tease me. Sounds easy. <laughs> and uh, then, then of course, Carol Ann Ford. That would be the other one. Uh, yes. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you both for being here, obviously. Uh, next week, you're going to get to listen to us finally get to the seventh Doctor, and we're going to talk about yeah. Mel, and we're going to talk yeah. about Dragonfire. And everyone's... I like dragons. I like fire. I'm thrilled about Sylvester. Sylvester McCoy. I have been waiting literally years now to watch a fucking episode of Sylvester McCoy. Well, it will happen. It will happen next week. And uh, we also get to you're going to get to see Cyberline Glitz one more time. So uh, look forward to that. I I diggle. (laughs) I I gotta admit it. And until next week, the TARDIS is closed. Bye-bye! Bye-bye. We thank James Bragg for the use of our theme song. Doctor Who theme on Minimoog. You can find his work at youtube.com slash hyperdust7 or at phoenix-flare.com. All our episodes can be found at oispaceband.lipson.com or on iTunes. You can find Oispaceband on Facebook or email us at oispacebandpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an irregularly updated blog at oispacebandblog.wordpress.com. Daniel is also the co-host of a weekly movie podcast called They Must Be Destroyed On Sight, which you can find at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find Daniel's Twitter and Tumblr at Daniel Lee Harper, all one word, and you can find Shanus at Inkyosa, that's I-N-K-Y-O-S-A. We look forward to hearing from you.